0: it's friday august 4th 2023 from peachfish productions it's the gist i might Pesca, and let's talk biden's you've got your hunter biden james biden the president's brother he's in the mix and then of course there's the biden brand the so-called biden crime family you'll hear biden opponents say the biden's benefited I'm going to tell you what to look for in all these claims and assertions about Biden's broadly speaking Biden's look for Joe connections to Joe the idea that whatever these other Bidens are of doing bidening by themselves is Joe involved? Now, Devin Archer, a business associate of a Biden, though not Joe, Hunter, testified before a closed panel of the U.S. House of Representatives. The transcripts of that testimony have been released, and I have to say they are largely, if not entirely, exculpatory. In terms of the president, that'd be Joe Biden, not the president's son. He's Hunter Biden, a guy who very much tried to and successfully did trade on the Biden name. Now, many, many, many many opponents of the Bidens will say that Joe Biden is implicated by all the stuff that Hunter did. It's just that the testimony doesn't reveal it. Many members of the committee, some members of the media are claiming the testimony reveals it. But time and time again, Devin Archer said, yeah, Hunter Biden said a lot of things, but he never said that he controlled Joe Biden. I shall read to you from page 28 of that transcript. Devin Archer, he, Hunter Biden, was getting paid a lot of money. And I think, you know, he wanted to show value. Mr. Mandolfo, who is uh, the lawyer for the committee and was part of that value, bringing his dad to Ukraine. Archer, I think in here it's clear that he's not bringing his dad, but he's saying, you know, I'm going to get credit for it. But when you say get credit, answer... He's not, he was not determining, he wasn't setting his dad's schedule to bring him to Ukraine, I don't think, question right, but when his dad's traveling to Ukraine, he's trying to have the Burisma officials recognize that he should get credit, he being Hunter but Biden, should get credit for his dad traveling to Ukraine. Would you agree with that answer? I would say that's, that's what that says, and if that's, if that comes accurately, that's what he's saying, I think it's pretty obvious, we're going to pause here in the transcripts, at several times, Devin Archer is talking about things that are obvious, and the committee needs to get him to say what he thinks is obvious. It becomes a bit of a strain. Here we go. Question. And what do you think is obvious about it? Answer, he's saying, again, I can't speculate because I don't know if the email, I'm just reading that email. Question, but you've had other conversations with Hunter Biden. You were his business partner for a long time. Answer, uh uh-huh. Question, did he talk about how bringing his dad to Ukraine or using his dad as vice president would add value in the eyes of Burisma officials? Answer, yes. And how would that come up? Answer, I just think it's almost, it's pretty obvious if you're, you know, you're the son of a vice president. Lawyer interrupts, he's asking about specific conversations. Archer, yeah, specific conversations, no. He would, we would not talk specifically about, you know, he would not be so overt. And I think that's, you know, I think that's another obvious point that he would not say, okay, we're going to, where, you know, I'm overtly, we're going to use my dad for this. But I think he would, you know, given the brand, I think he would look to, you know, to get the leverage from it. Devin Archer has this way of talking that a lot of people have in 2023. I would just think, even though he played lacrosse at Yale, the guy did go to Yale. He was worth hundreds of millions of dollars, at least his company's deals were, and he's going to testify before Congress. I would say, you know, try to button things up a little bit. Later on in the testimony, New York Democrat Dan Goldman tried to tease out of Devin Archer the idea that... Whatever Hunter Biden said that he was responsible for, Hunter Biden was responsible for no part of Joe Biden's schedule. Question, and to your knowledge, did Hunter Biden have any role whatsoever in getting his father, the vice president, to visit Ukraine? I have no idea. I have no knowledge. You have no basis to believe that Hunter Biden, no, had any role in his answer. I have no basis to believe. In fact, this statement, if it actually is a statement from Hunter Biden, says he will say, what he will say and do is out of our hands. Does it accord with your recollection that Hunter Biden had no ability to influence what his father would do or say on official trips to Ukraine. Answer, yeah, I have. I have no. I have no basis to understand what his father and his conversations were about policy in Ukraine. But as you can see, that seems pretty familiar that you know he can't influence it but take credit for it. I mean, that was, it's literally the back and forth between now. He talks about another exhibit. People send signals, and those signals are basically used as currency. That's kind of how a lot of DC operators and foreign tycoons and businessmen work. Question. In other words, it's not that Hunter Biden was influencing U.S. policy. It's that Hunter Biden was falsely giving the Burisma executives the impression that he had any influence over U.S. policy. Answer. I think that's fair. And then there's a later question. And then there's a comment that's attributed to Hunter Biden that says, quote, you should send to Vadim, one of their associate, makes it look like we're adding value. Archer. Yep. Question. Makes it look does that mean he's actually adding value or that he's claiming credit for something he has no control over? A little lawyerly back and forth. Goldman asks just a common sense interpretation. Mr. Archer, the common sense interpretation is taking credit where credit is not due. Question. In other words, Hunter Biden would take credit for his father's actions, even though he had no role or influence in those actions. Answer. He would take credit for them. Question: despite having no role in them or influence over them. Answer, yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, I can't, I don't know. Based on what you knew, based on what I knew, yes. Did Hunter Biden ever tell you I can get my dad's change U.S. policy? No. Are you aware of Hunter Biden ever asking his dad to change foreign policy? No. Are you ever, were you ever privy to any conversation between Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, which they discussed how no, Joe Biden would no, take actions on behalf of Hunter Biden? No. So is it fair to say that Hunter Biden was selling the illusion of access to his father? Yes. I think we could stop there. There was nothing that made Devin Archer crack. Devin Archer... I don't know how much he likes the Bidens. I don't know how much he's inconvenienced by all of this, but I am telling you, there's a lot of bad stuff about a guy named Biden. That is not about Joe Biden. That's about Hunter Biden. The defense, I guess, rests on the show today. Guess who got sued? She raps and plays flute. He flails and faces multiple suits. Rudy Giuliani and Lizzo, together, not as strange bedfellows, but as defendants in separate civil cases, where each are called racist, sexist, and you won't believe this one, but anti-fat. But first, we speak again with Vanderbilt University political historian, Eli Merritt, his book, Disunion Among Ourselves, The Perilous Politics of the American Revolution, and today we will be discussing profit-fueled demagoguery, the solution to said demagoguery, and also a little bit about the 1619 Project. Eli Merritt up next. Eli Merritt is a Vanderbilt University professor. He is the author of Disunion Among Ourselves, The Perilous Politics of the American Revolution. And Eli Merritt, as a great professor, points out the flaws in our country, but also thinks it's quite worth preserving. I submitted to him, I have always agreed with that basic assessment. But in the last few years, let us say in the last decade, we have gone from a flawed but model, America is a flawed but, however you want to fill in the blanks model, To a America is inherently flawed model. There is no coming back from the inherent deficiencies, white supremacy of America. So I asked Professor Merritt, am I overreacting to a loud but quite minority critique? Or does he hear what I'm hearing? Does he see what I'm seeing? How does he diagnose it?
1: I I agree with your assessment of the past 10 years, and I think incrementally, probably since uh, Changes were made that led to the rise of Rush Limbaugh. What you're saying has been on a steady march forward, and that's in the late uh, 1980s. Uh, you probably know, Mike, because you've looked at my my Substack, American Commonwealth and other things, that my, I would say my two areas of greatest interest and expertise are the founding period of the United States, but then also the idea of the intersection of, of demagoguery and democracy. And so I, I, w- I would say we have entered a phase of our history, where uh, demagoguery poses an extraordinary danger to discourse and also to uh, the future of the country. And so by demagoguery, just to clarify, and I bring up the word demagogue and demagoguery because this is a concept that was born essentially the day after democracy was born and understood in ancient Athens in the fifth century BC. Oh yeah, (laughs) that
0: was in their writings. It's like, oh, democracy, good idea. Wait a minute. You know, from everyone who ever thought of democracy, from Socrates to Hamilton said, wait a minute, what about demagogues?
1: Uh, well, I'm going to use just that, actually. Wait a minute, I like that, because that's exactly how I, how I feel. So for, for, demagoguery it can be thought of as being composed of a number of things, but just to help folks if they're wondering exactly what demagoguery is, fear-mongering, hate-mongering, bigotry, and disinformation. And so when I say disinformation, these other things as well, I think we all understand that we've entered into a very... Unhappy and problematic phase. It's technology driven. It's also profit driven. So I, I don't, I don't have perfect solutions at all for how we handled this grave problem of demagoguery, demagoguery by Trump in the weeks leading to the January 6th insurrection, and on the uh, on the day of that insurrection, demagoguery led to political violence. And so sometimes when I think of, if I had a a magic wand or a magic board with buttons on it the way I would, I would feel very confident we could repair the United States right now, it's this. <clears throat> turn off demagogues in politics, particularly in federal politics, and particularly beyond that in presidential politics. Turn off demagogue, get them out, do whatever we need to do to remove demagogues from that pipeline. The other is to turn turn off demagogues from the news media. Uh, Tucker Carlson is as talented a demagogue as Trump is. And then the other buttons would be um, uh, volume controls, I would turn down the extremism in the Republican Party, and I would turn down the extremism in the Democratic Party, and with that, I really would have great confidence in the future. It really, civility in a democracy is as important as a constitution. It really is. We have to. We, we can't just think in a democracy. You just have to fight hard, and 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 whoever wins the majority of votes, for example, that'll solve all our problems. No, there are, there are democratic political values. And there are also essential democratic behavioral values. And I'll just emphasize again, civility is essential in the functioning of a democracy.
0: Yeah. So let me make a point on demagoguery and democracy. They, of course, come from the same root word, the demos, the people. And just as Satan was an angel cast out of heaven, I see that demagoguery is just the bizarro world negative sheen on democracy. Although maybe Plato would say that demagoguery is the necessary um, the necessary fruit, if you will, the, po- the fruit of the poison tree. So that's just one observation. The other is I don't want to in any way play down the dangers of right-wing demagoguery. Most demagogues from Rush Limbo to Charlie Kirk to uh, actual people who get elected to office or claim they were elected like Kari Lake who weren't, they're more right-wing demagogues. I don't see too many... There are such a thing as left-wing demagogues. They haven't taken control of the Democratic Party. But one aspect to demagoguery is the flattening of nuance. You did say, let's tone down the right-wing demagoguery and the left-wing extremism. I do want to talk about that a little bit. I don't know if it's extremism, but there seems to be, to me, a lack of nuance in looking at the past and saying something other than a bunch of people trying to make right choices with all the flaws that people contain. It seems to me way too flat to say America, white supremacist nation, we have to unlearn the lessons of the past even when maybe they are valid lessons. Like this notion, I know you've praised the 1619 Project. I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. I love Wesley Lowery's essay on culture, but this idea, let us replace 1776 as the founding date of America. What if I told you it was 1619? I have to say, no, that is a less accurate way to understand America. At that date, black people came to our shores.
1: Well, I, I feel strongly that the work that I know the most of is Nicole Hannah Jones has been um, really misinterpreted uh, in order to better understand uh, what she was saying, I uh, went to some trouble uh, it, it, trouble not trouble but enjoyment looking at YouTube videos so she is she as a, a, a careful thinker is not trying to replace 1776 with 1619. she is simply saying there is another origin story here which we should discuss. Critical thing there. Another origin story. So there is the practice there by her in my observation. And also, I think it's essential. If something is just wrong, we can throw it out and say, that's not that's not history. But otherwise, there's additive history that takes place sort of in this context of my deep belief and appreciation for complex history. I, I, I enjoy the concept of additive history. So I think she has said and needs to be said, and others perhaps, that <clears throat> Yes. I mean, 1776 is the origin story of white independence and the beginning of white rights and, 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 and white liberties. But it really is not only not the origin story of African-Americans, it's somewhat the opposite of that. The oppression of African-Americans continued. So to add a story that begins in 1619, I find to be uh, delightful and helpful and necessary. And I've, I've written much more enthusiastically about Juneteenth, actually than I have about um, the 1619 Project. So I think there's, again, if we can get out of this dichotomous righteous thinking, I think there's plenty of room for alternative stories, different stories that have different meaning and valence for folks from different backgrounds or different races.
0: Yes, I agree, but what is the river and what is the tributary? What if I told you that the year 1619 is as important to the American story as the year 1776? Would you agree with that?
1: I would not, but I would. I I have really gone out on a limb in a a post on American Commonwealth uh, a couple of weeks ago, in which I think it's the one on my homepage now, which I say Juneteenth is by far more important today than the July 4th. And the reason I say that and believe that is uh, that we understand July 4th now. It's a time of celebration. We don't understand Juneteenth, but much more importantly, this. Juneteenth is celebrating the emancipation of 4 million enslaved people and the 4th of July, celebrating a lot of important things, including the emancipation of 1.5 million white people from a form of oppression, which was bad, but nowhere near as bad as as slavery. So my belief now is, in fact, if you want to look at the entire scope of American history, what is the most important and remarkable event in all US history when it comes to the concept of liberty and freedom. It's emancipation of enslaved people for, who had lived in slavery in our, in our society, in our country for hundreds of years. But, so I don't need to compare them this way, but right now I have, I have that feeling and we need to make room for Juneteenth to come fully into our understanding, into our hearts, into our souls.
0: I agree with that. I had Kermit Roosevelt on. I don't know if you know him. And he says, let us stop thinking about 1776 as the foundation. Let us think about the 1868 Constitution, Equal Rights Clause. Let's think about this as the founding. It at least tells me that there is an effort to rehabilitate from that trend of the last 10 years that you and I put our finger on, the rehabilitate the idea of
1: America as this fatally flawed place. Well, at the same time, no, I do want to... I, 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 Fourth of July is an important date. I've had a couple of op-eds come out on that date just days ago. Let's be clear that the founders of the nation were very flawed. And some people like they must be evil because they practice slavery. I really deplore the concept of, of, of the devil. I practiced psychiatry for 20 years, as you somewhat made allusion to before pivoting into history. They were corrupted. Their minds were corrupted. And that led to the practice of slavery. There's no question about that. But the ideas that they unleashed during the American Revolution in the Declaration of Independence and some other documents are revolutionary. So we need to entirely embrace the concepts that we find in the Declaration of Independence. All people are created equal. Also the right of revolution, which means the right of resistance against arbitrary government and unconstitutional acts. These are things which we can still actually kneel down at the altar on and say, thank you for passing down these brilliant ideas. So we might start less celebrating the the people of the founders, but more the gifts and concepts that they bestowed upon us. Uh, We couldn't have gotten where we are today uh, without those ideas. Probably without those ideas, we would not have had the emancipation of enslaved people in the 1860s. So there's a lot to be grateful for. There's a lot of critical thinking that we can take to to, to July 4th. I think we need to keep studying these things deeply until we can get to some sort of common narrative where we say, That's right. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh,
0: At the risk of making you uncomfortable, you and I agree. I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying. I don't want this to be any sort of, do we agree or disagree with Nicole Hannah-Jones? But those quotes I, I said to you that, you know, what if I told you that 1619 is more important to the founding of America? That was from the 1619 Project, and Nicole Hannah-Jones says, 1619 tells you more about this country than 1776 does. And you and I both disagree with that. It doesn't mean that Nicole Hannah-Jones is a (laughs) bad thinker, bad person, or that even that, I bet you, uh, I think that she probably has a lot of nuance around this. But when the 1619 Project is taught in the schools, when the 1619 Project is pointed to as the founding of America, more important than the rest of the stuff, Uh, I don't like it. I don't want my kids taught that. I kind of unteach them when their schools, or at least add to their understanding when their schools tell them this. I think we probably have waited hundreds of years for some sort of correction. Oftentimes the pendulum of correction swings a little too far but that's just what I see going on. I would n- in no way eradicate the 1619 Project. I'm glad it exists. I'm glad it exists as an argument. It's just an argument that I don't take at 100% faith.
1: Oh, I think you're 100% right in what you've said. And so the another way to see this is that the 1619 Project has introduced an interpretation or perspective on history, which is a good thing if it's accurate. Now you're bringing up the larger question of well, what happens when a, a, an aspect of history is brought forward into history wars, culture wars, education wars, and ultimately the political wars we're engaged in now. And so I think this, the 1619 Project, it's not about its inherent value or its inherent sophistication as, as a historical manner of interpretation, but it's about the fact that it's falling into a political culture, which I'm increasingly thinking of as not just being polarized, or hyperpolarized, but being life and death polarized. What what happens? We are at a state where on both sides we hear folks saying, well, the problem with Republicans, the problem with Democrats is they're evil. So we're at the, what do you do with evil? You got, you got to either get away from it or destroy it somehow. This is all part of this profit-driven, Uh, 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 demagoguery, which I think is, uh, if there's anything evil, it's not a person I'm referring to, it's the prophet-driven demagoguery. So I think you're right to say this is just dreadful that my children in school are being taught one dogma and and one dogma only, rather than, again, complex interpretations of things that we know are complex. We know that the truth of history is complex. So I'm with you in the lamentation about oversimplified righteous history of any kind. Just like, just like
0: if, um, I don't think I was taught this, but maybe a generation before mine was really exposed to the uh, lost cause view of the Civil War. And we have to say, no, that is wrong. That's not even complex. Uh, I try to adhere to a similar principle when I deal with the au courant ways of looking at history that are um, in some ways inaccurate. You got to call out inaccuracies. It is not, for instance, I'll ask you, you're a scholar. It is not true that... The revolution was fought to preserve the institution of slavery, right?
1: Well, here again, you're not going to get me into one black or white thinking. The revolution was not launched or perpetuated, I think, with a major motivation of, uh, of of preventing the liberation of enslaved people. No, however, quite critically, one of the dominant fears, mainly of the southern colonies, from beginning of the American Revolution to the end of the American Revolution, is that somehow the British army would uh, uh launch uh, insurrections of enslaved people and that they would not only have to fight the british they would also have to fight the 400,000 enslaved people within the within the four or five southern states so in that way there was fear of of a civil war between enslaved people and white people yes it was there was it a motivation at some point after lord dunmore actually in order to enacted something called the uh, basically an Emancipation Proclamation in 1775, saying anyone in the state of Virginia, colony of Virginia at that time, who will join us, uh, we will take you into our side. That that happened. Uh, I forget the exact numbers of folks. It was in the hundreds of enslaved people who actually joined and formed the the regiment, Ethiopian Regiment, in the British Army. That was a fear, but a major motivation for the reason for perpetuating and launching the American Revolution? No, not major, minor.
0: Right. So what the essay originally argued was one of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. And Sean Wilentz and other historians objected to that. And there was fight and a little bit of editing over that claim. Maybe it wasn't the central claim, but I remember reading it when it came out on, I was on a talk show next to Nicole Hannah-Jones. And I said, really, really?
1: And I looked into that and it bothered me very much. Maybe,
0: maybe it's it's overstated as
1: much as it did. Well, uh, I mean, unfortunately, I probably am uh, uh, a, a practitioner of this too. Exaggeration in claims with regard to history, I think, are pretty common. So I do believe that's an exaggeration. But at what point is something an exaggeration or not? A better statement would have been one significant contributing factor for the launch of the American Revolution when it happened did have to do with the southerners' fear of, uh, of domestic insurrections of enslaved people. That's true. I don't think that's an exaggerated statement. But again, exaggeration is human.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think it's been edited to reflect that. Mm-hmm. But the reason why it's important is that maybe we should end here is that our understanding of who we are and how we got here and why we're here is inextricably bound in these stories about history. So it's not an academic matter. If we had a very different understanding, and I think your disunion book very much contributes to our understanding. If we had that different understanding, it's not implausible to think that we'd operate quite differently. I mean, maybe not, you know, the people who listen to Charlie Kirk are probably not going to be exposed to this, right? The people who love the Occupy Democrats feed on Twitter are not going to be listening to our conversation, but I still think there's plenty of evidence in the real world that it's true, that the stories we tell and our understanding of our hist- of our historical momentum shows up in elections, shows up in arguments, and shows up in the choices we make to this day.
1: Yeah, I, that, the concept of a common narrative and the way that it unites people or binds the people of a country, I think is is critically important. Also a sense of common purpose and other things. And again, when you bring that up, it, it takes me back to, well, what, what it, what's, what's obstructing this sense of coming together and, and having difference of views, but, but forming some sense of consensus about what that common narrative is. And again, it is, my favorite subject is demagoguery, but again, the, what do we do about profit-fueled demagoguery? What do we do about the fact that Rupert Murdoch in the Dominion case Remarkably, he said, it's not about the red or the blue, it's about the green. And what he really meant to say there, it's about the green that we get from profit fueled demagoguery. That's what this thing is all about. So I, I, it starts with enlightenment. We have to understand that this demagoguery is not just this disgusting thing on the sideline that we wonder when it's going to go away. We have to get active in figuring out how, in this profit laden and technology laden society we live in, how are we going to handle this and begin? a campaign for the mitigation uh, of this demagoguery and we have the problem of course of free speech that's incredible i mean demagoguery is part of free speech so the solutions that i come up with r- with regard to that are first educating ourselves to understand what demagoguery is what demagogues are and the fact that these things can bring down a democracy true fact and then the the uh, solution if there is one i, I do believe is to work hard for the restoration of civility in our discourse, otherwise known as codes of ethics. Most of our media out there, news media out there, I've searched. They're not really operating by a public code of ethics. There is at least one dramatic and remarkable exception to that, and that's NPR. They have the most beautiful code of ethics. They call it the handbook of ethics. In in our current climate, I encourage people to go look at the NPR handbook of ethics, and, and some of you will tear up as you look at it because you will see This is how a democracy is supposed to operate, according to this Handbook of Ethics by NPR.
0: Eli Merritt is a political historian at Vanderbilt. His Substack is called American Commonwealth. And I'll list his last three books, How to Save Democracy, Inspiration and Advice from 95 World Leaders, The Curse of Demagogues, Lessons Learned from the Presidency of Donald J. Trump, and the latest Disunion Among Ourselves, The Perilous Politics of the American Revolution. Dr. Merritt, thank you so much.
1: Great to be with you, Mike. Good conversation.
0: And now, the spiel. For all our differences, you know what unites us as Americans? getting sued, and I say that because the two most opposite people in America have been sued. On the one end of the spectrum, we have a white Northeastern male in his late 70s. He's lookist. He's at least mm, quite strongly racist adjacent. He can't play the flute. On the other end, a black woman in her mid-30s from the Midwest and Texas who is all about body positivity or really any positivity at all, unlike our angry, angry older gentleman talking about Lizzo and Rudy, Rudy Giuliani and Melissa Vivian Jefferson, Lizzo. They do have some things in common. I mean, Rudy never took a DNA test to affirm he's 100% that bitch, but he probably is. Also, they're the subject of civil suits. Giuliani is being sued by Noel Dunphy, a former employee, though he disputes that. As per Rudy's definition, Dunphy, an Ivy League graduate who founded a consulting firm and is a former model, was just helping him with work and occasionally, no, often gratifying his sexual desires. She was doing it for free because she enjoyed doing those things. I will read from the New York Times coverage of the case. Noelle Dumphy filed a lawsuit in May claiming that Mr. Giuliani, the former mayor of New York City, began harassing and assaulting her shortly after he hired her in January 2019. Mr. Giuliani has responded that Ms. Dumphy was never his employee and the two had a consensual relationship. On tape, she made recordings of the former mayor discussing the size of Jewish men's penises. The New York Times goes on to say Jews Quoting Giuliani, they want to go through that freaking Passover all the time. Man, oh man, get over the Passover. It was like 3,000 years ago. Okay, the Red Sea parted. Big deal. Not the first time that happened. The report goes on to say that Giuliani used a homophobic slur against Matt Damon and continues, quote, Matt Damon is 5'2", he says, adding inexplicably, eyes are blue, Coochie, 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 coo—an apparent allusion to a 1925 song. Maybe Miss Dunfee responds, and then the Times parenthetically adds, "Mr. Damon has said he is five foot ten and a half inches tall." So that is the Times coverage. It's great context on the red nickels, Jimmy Dorsey origins of the non sequitur coochie 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 coo. I think it's also some shade, you know, talking about a 1925 song. It's a little maybe ageist. It's as if they said, and then Giuliani ended by saying land of the free home of the brave, an apparent allusion to an 1814 poem. But the scope of the misdeeds against Giuliani go way beyond diminishing the literal stature of Matt Damon, star of downsizing in which, to be fair, Damon does play a character who shrinks to five inches. The Daily Beast has much more blunt coverage, really gets at the nub of the story. I'll read the headline on the subhead. Come here, big tits, Rudy Giuliani, sex accuser, has the tape subhead. Your tits belong to me. Give them to me, the former mayor told Noel Dumphy, according to transcripts filed in a court by Dumphy's lawyers. So I say hallelujah, apparent reference to a 1741 chorus. The actual court filing is wild. Certainly would offend the sensibility of Times readers. That is sort of the point in filing a court case like this. It doesn't have to imply that the old guy's stuck in 1925. It just has to assert, as it does, that Giuliani forced Dunphy to engage in oral sex with him including times he was on the phone, including when he was on the phone with President Trump and that Giuliani said it made him feel like Bill Clinton. Quote, he also asked Ms. Dumphy if she knew anyone in need of a pardon, telling her that he was selling pardons for 2 million, which he and President Trump would split. Giuliani often demanded that she work naked, in a bikini, or in short shorts with an American flag on them that he bought for her when they were apart. They would often work remotely via video conference, and during those conferences, Giuliani almost always asked her to remove her clothes on camera. Here's some more random sentences from the filing. Yeah, because I know that's exactly what you need and want. Giuliani demeaned and sexualized Margaret Thatcher and wondered about the effects she would have on his penis. Giuliani later said that he was, quote, very hot for Senator Elizabeth Warren. Here's a sentence. The following screenshot from the film Borat, subsequent movie film, depicts Giuliani acting in a similar manner to how he acted with Miss Dumphy. The lawsuit is a picture of a former hero who has become a sybaritic, alcoholic, preapic menace. Also, somewhat fat phobic. That little bit is in there, too which shockingly is also one of the charges against Lizzo. She is being sued by three former dancers, some of the big girls. Numerous charges include sexual, religious, and racial harassment, disability discrimination, assault, and false imprisonment. Plaintiff Ariana Davis was on CBS to discuss a few of those charges. At first, Davis said she enjoyed being on tour as a backup dancer, a big girl, And she offered that sentiment up to Lizzo in a group setting.
2: And, you know, it was my turn. I want to speak up and say, hey, like, just thank you so much for like this, this great journey. Because at the time it was a wonderful journey um, for the most part, you know, besides a couple snafus with management um, and their like microaggressions. But other than that, like the journey, I had met amazing people and it was great.
0: But then Lizzo, according to Davis, said something odd. Lizzo said she was worried about Davis at South by Southwest. Why, Davis thought, what was different about me? There could only be one thing. Davis had gained weight. And so this, this is Davis's words in an interview with CBS. This is how Lizzo brought that up.
2: And they pulled me into a private meeting and they wanted to know what was wrong with me. because they said I don't seem the same all of all of these don't seem the same and what's wrong with you you know something must be going on we can see right through you all of these kind of things have have been said to me um in 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 a way to like mask as a safe space but really there was this underlying air of like why are you bigger right it, it that's that's what it felt like.
0: And so that explains the Today Show headline. Dancers who filed lawsuit against Lizzo described nuanced weight shaming.
2: She was trying to allude to the fact that I was gaining weight in like a way that she wouldn't like get canceled.
0: But get canceled, Lizzo will, if the allegations are confirmed, or even just widely believed. Two of the litigants have done numerous prominent interviews, i played you some, and they allege racial discrimination because they, as with all the other backup dancers, the big girls, are black, and they were compensated at different rates than other members of the tours. NBC News explains, quote, In one instance, the former dancers asked to be compensated for their downtime at a rate of 50% of their weekly pay, according to the Super Suit. an accountant allegedly responded to the request by offering 25% and scolding them for being unacceptable and disrespectful only the dance cast comprised of full figured women of color were ever spoken to in this manner the suit states davis was pressured at one point to touch a nude dancer in amsterdam pressured through the use of
2: chance she said oh hurry. Ari, right. and then everyone kind of in the club joins in and they're like, Ari, right, Ari. Right. So of course, like I had to do it.
0: And as far as false imprisonment, that one jumped out at me. It's kind of a complex story, but Davis taped Lizzo without the singer and flautist's knowledge. The suit explained this was done because, quote, Davis recorded the April 27th meeting because she suffered from an eye condition that sometimes left her disoriented in stressful situations. So that gets a little bit at the disability part of the lawsuit, but also it might be in there because in the state in which the taping occurred, it might be a dual party state, meaning unilateral of taping someone without their knowledge would be disallowed. But... You could claim that it should be allowed if there was an accommodation of a disability at play. In any case, Lizzo demanded the dancer delete the video. And then, according to NBC, quote, the suit alleges false imprisonment against Lizzo's production company because a member of her security detail allegedly forced Davis to remain in the room after the meeting ended so he could search her phone for the video. Well, between that and hearing Margaret Thatcher's sex talk, I don't know which is worse – in fact, I do – but I do know that it seems that no one in America is safe from a lawsuit, a situation which could bind us all to each other in the long run. The vulnerable include both the lecherous and decrepit as well as the talented and zaftig. So to that I just say USA. You? Oh no, wait, sorry, if anyone feels unduly pressured by chanting. <music> and that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Corey Wara with Joel Patterson as the senior producer and Michelle Pesca, CLO of Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libson's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. Um pro guru doo coochie 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 coo, and thanks for listening.